Now, we all know that Martin can metabolise a pint in five minutes, but I bet even he wouldn't turn his nose up at getting free beer delivered to his door. Yes, our friends at Beer 52 are offering our listeners a free case of eight unique craft beers. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF and cover the postage of $5.95. Beer 52 is the world's largest beer club. Even Big Mandy is welcome, but not Colin. He's an utter bozo. Each month, members are sent a crate of beer with different themes. Don't like dark beer? Then choose the light option. Comes with a magazine and two snacks, BLT and crumpets not included. Don't be a cockwomble. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF to get this amazing offer. That's www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF. The following podcast contains strong language, like what the actual fuck. Hello there, I'm Paul Shahidi, also known as the Reverend Francis Seaton in this country, and you're listening to WTAF. Scarecrow Festival is like the most important day of the year. Daft cow. This is just ridiculous. What the actual... Fuck. Hey, what the actual fuckers, and welcome to WTAF of this country podcast. Now, first, he's the man who I've just found staggering around the village marketplace, blocking cars and shouting at the kebab shop. It's Neil. We don't want none of them in our village. <laughs> but obviously, before 10 o'clock, you're not allowed out at 10 o'clock. Anymore. Oh, yes, of course. In these groups, there's more than six, you see. I need to shout, swear at them, and get rid of them. Yeah, that's what you need to do, but not if you're pissed, obviously. Why not? It makes anyway. it. I'm a, I've got a lot more bravado when I'm pissed. Yeah, haven't we all? Haven't yeah, we all? Now, our super fan guest this episode is a journalist, writer, podcaster. In fact, he's co-host with past super fan guest Lindsay Bowers on the "Is This Thing On" podcast, and he's the author of "We're Everywhere Us," charting Liverpool's 2014-15 season through the eyes of the fans. Please welcome Sashin Nakrani. Hello. <laughs> Guys. We're doing very, very well, and it's a wet, wet, wet day today where we are. How's the weather with you? Yeah, very similar. It was. Uh, I mean, I'm talking to you from my spare room where I've been working all day. Like a lot of us, obviously now uh, working from home, uh, and it was fine up until about I think three o'clock, and then it just started chucking down relentlessly. Just looking out the window now, it's pitch black, but it does look like it's also stopped raining. But yeah, very wet day in South London where I am. I thought you was going to go into a whole weather thing for us then. <laughs> just like the way it's moving in from the north. I thought you were... <laughs> I can do. I mean, I'm no expert on weather, but I'll give it a next job. All I can say to you with absolute certainty is it's very wet outside. Right. That's yeah, good. Same. Same. Yeah. So uh, we're here to talk this country, but we will talk about your other things as well because I want to chat to you about Liverpool and. Uh, and um, completely alienate Neil from the conversation. Um, but first of all, with this country, when did you find out about it? And when did you first start watching it? Yeah, so I've got quite an interesting story, uh, origin story when it comes to this country. So um, two years ago, 2018, I started uh, a sitcom podcast 
with a friend of mine. I do love my podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm currently on two of them, and I used to do a third one as well. Uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a sitcom podcast. Me and a guy uh, called Steve would spend uh, every different episode talking about different sitcom. We're both big sitcom fans. And uh, he is far more of a sitcom geek than me. He's really, really into his sitcoms, and he sort of gets on them a lot quicker than I do. Uh, so we're going through sort of which sitcoms to talk about. We pick some obvious ones, you know, um, Father Ted, I think was one of our early ones and uh, things like that. Um, and then sort of, I don't know what it was, like episode 10 or something. He said, we should do this. Have you seen that BBC sitcom, This Country? And I had literally not heard of it. So this is like spring 2018. I think quite far down, I think series one had probably already been shown. So I was like, no, I've not heard of it. So um, he said, yeah, it's brilliant. You'd love it. So he gave me a couple of episodes to watch in preparation for the, uh, the podcast episode. We were going to do reviewing it. I can't remember which episodes it was. It was two from, it was like first episode, which is the Scarecrow one. And then there was another one, which I can't remember. And yeah, just fell in love with it immediately. Um, so yeah, that's how um, I came about uh, this country from doing yeah the sitcom podcast, which it's kind of scary to think that without that, I may have completely missed it um, up until relatively recently, because obviously it was kind of hidden away on BBC Three, wasn't it, for a long mm, time? That's right, that's right. So you had the joy of actually then getting, going back and binging two series once you found out about it, I would have thought. Uh, I think series two hadn't come out at that stage. You guys will right. obviously be able to correct me. Spring 2018, I don't know where we it were. Was, it was either about to then or yeah. yeah, it would have been just about to drop, wouldn't it? Just about yeah, to no, yeah. yeah, February. It would have been February, wouldn't it? It would have been February yeah. of 18... I forget what year it is now. Yeah. <laughs> the years and days mould into one at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, you may be right. You may well be right. Series one had definitely come and gone. I know that for a fact, because Steve was, uh, the guy did the podcast, we were talking about it and saying, you know, the, the whole series has been on. It's amazing. Uh, and actually, I do remember that. He gave me two episodes to watch as kind of homework for the for the thing we were doing. And then I just ended up watching the other four uh, just immediately off the back end. Watch, I think I watched them all in sort of one afternoon. I think oh, certainly I've mm. two afternoons maximum. Yeah. So as soon as I saw the first episode, I just fell in love with it immediately. So what was it that you fell in love with? I've been thinking about this uh, in the, in the build up to obviously talking to you guys about it. I think I, I love sitcoms. I absolutely adore them. Uh, my favourite sort of TV genre, and I think there's kind of two two sitcom types, maybe more, I guess. But it's kind of your big sitcoms. So I think Only Fools and Horses is maybe a good example. This Father Ted is another one, which are just brilliantly funny, mm. but are kind of slightly cartoonish, if you, you know, with the characters and 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 the setups they have. And then I think there's those sitcoms which are quite small but incredibly realistic and they do that beautiful thing of combining humour with pathos, genuinely making you feel something. For me, the greatest sitcom of all time is The Office, um, which I know is kind of a cliche thing to say, but it is. And I think because it's, not, it's, just, it's a sitcom that's incredibly funny, but also, as I said, it has that pathos, really makes you feel something. You know, every time I came away from an episode from, from The Office, I kind of felt affected and felt moved by it. Mm. And I think the, the, the closest any sitcom has got to making me feel that since The Office is, is this country. It's incredibly funny, but there's this kind of emotional core to it, which, which I find absolutely beautiful. And I think any sitcom that can combine humour and pathos to that high level that The Office did and that this country has done, I think it's, you know, it just touches on something quite amazing. And I think that's the thing with this country. It doesn't just make you laugh. Like, you know, a lot of sitcoms you can watch and just think that was really funny and Seinfeld being maybe a good example. But there's no, there's no sort of depth there. And Seinfeld obviously famously had no depth because it was a sitcom about nothing. But this country, there's incredible depth. It's very moving. And I, and I think that combination of, of that emotional tie and, and emotional pull it has along with the humour 
uh, I just find really, really incredible, really. I mean, the writing is absolutely sensational. The characterization is, is incredible. And yeah, it's, it's, got, it's, it's got something, it's got a sort of root to it. It's got a, a core to it. I think Lucy Mangan, who's a TV writer for The Guardian, um, she, she sort of encapsulated it brilliantly. She said, every time, she sort of sees this country as a delicate, fragile thing, like a, like a little... Uh, bird that Daisy May Cooper and Charlie Cooper are cradling, and every time she watches an episode, she's fearful that the uh, the hand's going to slip and and it's and they're going to crush it. And I think that's mm. a beautiful way to do it. There's just something very kind of tender about mm. this country, uh, and consistently over the, every episode they've done, they they just nail it every single time. It's funny when you said that about this country because I was trying to think, and then you said about the office. I was trying to think if there was something before the office that had that same mixture. And the only thing I can think of that I've seen is um, that Peter Kay thing. I don't know if you ever saw that and can remember that. When was it was that six, the, yeah, it was, was six, sort of sketch based one. Where, yeah, yeah, well, it, it was it was, it was yeah. six six episodes of mockumentary, but it was different yeah. ones. And I can remember something like the Leonard episode. If anyone can ever remember that, was absolutely it was more heartbreaking than funny. And and yeah. it's weird how, like you say, everyone goes straight to the office. But I think Peter Kay did it sort of before that. But when it comes to the mockumentary, is that that's obviously a, a, a style of comedy that you like, is it, or is it just that just documentaries in general? Well, I think the mockumentary style allows you to to show that emotional core, uh, that emotional kind of beauty better because it because it doesn't feel like you're watching actors perform; it feels like you're watching real life people speak mm. to you directly through a camera. So, I mean, yeah, the Peter, the Peter K thing. I remember well. I think it was a brilliant episode, wasn't it, about an ice cream? That's it. Ice cream man cometh. Yeah. Ice cream man cometh. I remember that. Yeah. Mm. Um, And that they're they're all sort of mockumentary styles. I'm correct. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That style, which that had, which the officers office had obviously in this country has, it just worked so beautifully because it does feel like you're genuinely watching real people. So the emotional, um, the emotional realness, if you, if you want to put it that way, comes through that style. I mean, it could work in a kind of very staged way. You could feel like you're just watching, you know, uh, people just, uh, react off each other without talking to the camera, without feeling like you're watching a documentary. But uh, I think that style definitely elevates it. Mm. So within this country, then, which characters do you resonate or like the the most? Or um, I don't think I don't know if I have any sort of any characters I particularly like. I do think the vicar is is a sensational character. Uh, Paul Cheedy plays him absolutely wonderfully well because I think it would have been so easy for him to be kind of dibbly esque and be quite kind of a bumbling figure and quite, again, kind of cartoonish, as a lot of mm. vicars sometimes are portrayed on TV, if you think about the Vicar of Dibley and Father Ted to an extent as well. People of the cloth are often portrayed in, in quite a, a kind of bumbly, cartoony way. But again, there's there's a sort of subtle beauty to him there, really, in the sense that um, he's just a lovely man. He's not a sort of comedic in a way. He's just a guy trying to do his best for a community. Um, there's a real beauty there, a real subtlety there. But he plays it perfectly because you can kind of see behind the eyes there's this real kind of claustrophobic despair as well. I mean, obviously, as, as it goes on and he gets the job in Bristol and, he, and he's keen to leave. But you, I think you can kind of see with him that it's almost a front. That optimism is almost a front. I think, he, you know, he's a smart guy, the vicar, and he's aware that he's living in a community full of some real arseholes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and if he's not optimistic and if he's not loving, he will, he will just lash out and be very angry. And so I think the way he plays it, sometimes he doesn't say a lot. It's in the eyes. It's in the little, the silences and the little, uh, you know, the little gestures he gives to camera. Yeah. He's like the spine, isn't he? 
of the whole well all three series i i personally think he is like the spy he's what keeps it together until he finally admits he's going yeah absolutely he's also got that little layer of anger like you said he's got that little layer of anger that pops its head up every so often and shows that he isn't quite the lovely person that he is all the time he's just fiery francis Mm. so when it came to series three um did series three deliver everything that you wanted it to yeah i think so i mean i i think going into it you're obviously uh, did we know going to series three that series three was going to be the final series? Was that kind of was that signposted? I can't quite remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it, it was. Yeah, it was sort of announced that it was going to be the final series at the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how I remember it. So I think I went into it a bit of trepidation. I'm always concerned how great programs end. I think for me, it's really important they end well. I think um, the legacy they leave is really important. And I mean, just going back to Only Fools and Horses, which I mentioned earlier, I think they ruined it in a way with. They had that brilliant ending where they, they won the lottery and then they came back in sort of, sort of 2003, wasn't it, 10 mm. years later and, and did those kind of extra episodes which were terrible. And I was mm. in the office, just to talk about that again for a second, was the way that ending was absolutely perfect. And I really wanted this country to end in a beautiful kind of perfect way and I think they absolutely nailed it. I think that uh, sort of almost penultimate scene, wasn't it, where Curtin's, obviously Curtin and Kerry are trying to, don't want the vicar to leave and that scene on the bed where Curtin's on the bed talking to camera and it's kind of a twist almost, isn't it, where you think he's going to still continue to be an arsehole about all this. And then he sort of, sort of says, doesn't he, we're going to let him go. I just thought that was, I mean, it was mm. beautiful. And again, talking about the emotional power that this country has. I mean, that really moved me, that single moment. Um, you know, the sort of the, the sacrifice they were making. These two, possibly the two most selfish people you've ever seen on television, making this sacrifice because they realise it's the best thing for this guy they love. I thought, yeah, it was perfect. Absolutely mm-hmm. perfect ending. I mean, I don't. It won't be a contradiction, but would you like to see it come back? Um, good question. Uh, sort of, yeah. I, I think I don't know. It felt, it felt like there's a bit more to go in it. I think, I think, I think I'd love to. I think a lot with a lot of sitcoms. I think the, the danger is, as the characters get older, the story around them becomes less interesting. I think you know, you hit you hit certain certain sitcoms there's a sweet spot in terms of the age of the characters at the moment they are in their life. But I'd actually kind of like to see an older Kerry and Curtin sort of in their thirties, what's happened to them. I would say, mm. so for instance, I wouldn't necessarily want it to come mm. back tomorrow. If they were to come back in, let's say 10 years time, I think that'd be really interesting. Where are they? I mean, what age mm. do we know what age they are when series three ended? They're in their twenties. Yeah. We assume they're in their twenties, don't we? Yeah, what... yeah, sort of early twenties. I think is the is the thing. The thing I don't know whether it'd be sadder or funnier if you come and see them in ten years' time <laughs> and they're doing exactly the same thing, or, or maybe it would be both. Or maybe it would be sad and funny the fact that they're still just wandering around in the village yeah. doing nothing and loving life, basically. Probably a bit questionable if they're hanging around with yeah. people like the kids again. <laughs> well, they'd yeah, be old yeah. as well, yeah. so I don't know, maybe Yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they, wouldn't they move on? Wouldn't they just get a whole new generation of kids? Yeah. That's well, the way that's I the assume thing, they yeah. yeah. The way we see, the way we're talking, there's kind of a lot of possibilities there. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, would they have moved on? I mean, obviously, uh, Curtin had the opportunity to go and, and he stayed in the end. You'd feel like, by the time he's let's say 32 he would have left but maybe, yeah. maybe he wouldn't you feel like would Kerry have grown up would she realize that you know there is more to life than 
hanging around the village and, and not really doing much. Um, again, I just think there's a few opportunities there. Yeah. So I'd be fascinated to see it come back, but equally because it ended so well. Um, mm. if, if Daisy May Cooper and, and Charlie Cooper announced they're never going to make another episode again, I think that would be absolutely fine. The worst thing they could do is come back and produce something that just wasn't very good. I think that'd be a huge shame. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the worry. Yeah. Um, just to say, when you said about the final thing with Curtin, if with the more, the more I think about that, he gets the flat. He's well, he will have a flat, won't yeah. he? Yeah, he's been given the flat. The end. So he is in effect moving on, isn't he? He's not leaving yeah. the village, but his his life is moving. On. Yeah, that's true. I can imagine him. You can imagine coming back in ten years and he's got a kid. I think that feels like something that would definitely happen. It'd be a little curtain. So he would have, he would have married somebody or have a girlfriend. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's. I think what's what's again the subtlety with those two characters is it feels like they're kind of twins that are the same person, but one's one's a boy and one's a girl. But that's actually not the case, is it? I think they are quite different. I think Curtin's always had a very realistic view of the world and he knows there's a world beyond the village and obviously as I said there was that one time he tried to get away and then didn't go in the end and you mm. feel like that split where he does want to see more of the world he does realize there's more to life beyond the village and Kerry doesn't would lead to a natural split and even if it's him living in the village it would him probably having a family of having grown distant to her having a proper job maybe while she might still be just sort of bumming around doing the same thing she was doing 10 years earlier when she was in her, in her 20s. Mm. Indeed. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, this country a little bit later on, but um, with the whole thing of the lockdown, and um, you were saying about working from home, uh, you're sports editor for The Guardian. Yeah, not the sports editor. Wait, uh, no, uh, I, do, yeah, <laughs> I do a bit of editing, a bit of writing. I'm kind of... Um, yeah, sort of a jack of all trades, master of none type thing. I do various things in the office, mainly working in the office, yeah, uh, mainly working in the office on the main commissioning desk. So on the main commissioning editing desk. So I edit the sports section, the, the, the actual print sports pages sometimes. I'll be doing that tomorrow. Um, other days I'm commissioning articles. So working with the writers to come up with ideas and features and, and what have you. And um yeah, pushing that process through. And then I do a bit of writing as well. Um, Pre-lockdown, before before this all happened, I was covering Premier League games pretty regularly. And then obviously lockdown happened, so there was no football for three months. And then the football came back and I actually decided, because um, I'm quite flexible in how I work in terms of writing. I'm not a staff writer, so I'm not obliged to write. I basically told uh, sort of my bosses that <laughs> I don't really fancy writing because the, the conditions for writing at Premier League grounds now are really weird. I mean, um, like, you know, you can't use the press room. You've just got to go into your seat and stay there. They kick you out after an hour um, and stuff. And it all just sounded really unpleasant. And I thought, I'll, I'll wait until we can do it all properly again. You know, we're, and to be a bit cynical, it's because when you, when you do it properly, you get fed really well at Premier League stadiums. So you're not getting fed right. at the moment. That's the job. I won't be doing it, to be honest. What's your favourite stadium? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Well, well, from a working point of view. Or to visit, and either. Yeah, either. well, obviously Anfield is, uh, you know, obviously my favourite ground, which we might talk about later. But from a working point of view, um, I always enjoyed going to the Emirates, Arsenal's ground. Um, it's, it's one of the obviously more modern grounds. It was built in 2006. So it's really well set up for, for, for from a journalist's point of view. Even from a spectator's point of view, I've been there as an away fan and it's a great place to go. Um, 
and I've got to say, Tottenham's new ground is is stunning. It really is absolutely incredible uh, as a stadium. It's, I mean, it's a shame for them, their fans, that they've only just moved in and now they can't watch any games mm. there. Um, and Sellers Park, Crystal Palace's ground, for two reasons. One, it's a real throwback ground. It's a it's a very unique, old fashioned ground that's got a real sense of history about it, and very different to the sleek modern stadiums that you have now. Uh, but also, it's just really convenient to get to. I mean, I can sort of door to door. It's less than an hour. Just like a couple of very short bus rides, and I'm there. So, um, from a pure laziness point of view, I quite enjoy visiting. <laughs> so, when you're when you're writing for Premier League matches, is it easy or is it hard to be objective? If you're a Liverpool fan and you're covering just out of top of my head a Man United match, is it very hard? to be objective and say, well, they were pretty good today or is it something that takes training to do that? Not for me, no. And I think with a lot of journalists, not at all. I think I, I very easily go into work mode. So if I'm, if I'm covering Manchester United, I do find myself instantly being quite objective about how they're playing. Um, because I think when you're there, you, oh, you should have real, you should take professional pride in what you're doing. So you should want to, and obviously not some journalists aren't, some journalists you can read the bias through their copy, but... 98% of journalists, and, and I think this is something that people who read football journalism really need to understand, because I think every, every fan base thinks every set of journalists hates their club. It really isn't the case, honestly. Most of us just want to do a good job, get, you know, edit in a professional way, write in a professional way. And obviously, most of us do support clubs, but we really do kind of leave that at, you know, leave that at home when we go into the office or, or go to a stadium. And certainly for me, as soon as I walk into a ground, if I'm covering a game, you know, my professional hat is on and I just want to report on that game as accurately and fairly as possible. The danger, actually, when I cover Liverpool games is going too much the other way. So, you know, some people, you know, you're so worried about coming across as a fan with a laptop because I'm quite open, as you you know, you'll know, on, on Twitter about being a Liverpool fan. I'm so worried about sounding like a, like a Liverpool fan when I'm covering Liverpool that sometimes I go too much the other way and I'm quite harsh on them. In right. games, I mean, it's hard to do at the moment because obviously they're so good. But in previous seasons yeah. where they've lost and not played particularly well, if I was being, you know, if I wasn't a Liverpool fan, I'd probably be quite balanced and say oh, they weren't too bad today. You know, quite unlucky, but I kind of go over the top a bit and kind of go, "Hey, we're absolutely terrible." They really let themselves down, and that's just, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of, yeah, that sort of over overstep you take when you're keen not to come across as a, um, as I said, as a fan of the laptop. We need to talk about VAR. Mm. We do need to talk about and VAR. I'm going to talk in particular, <laughs> which is nearly putting me off football. Obviously, the Tottenham Newcastle. Yeah. That penalty decision. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think we need to separate two things out, which is VAR and handball. Uh, now, I'm against VAR broadly as well. I didn't see it. I was, apt, I was more than happy with the game as it was and accepting that referees are humans and they make mistakes and, and that's part of the game. But then VAR was introduced and I was like, okay, let's see how it goes. And I thought it was pretty terrible last year. I mean, especially as a, li- as a live... When you, when you go to games live, either as a journalist or more, more so as a fan, VAR is horrendous. Uh, being at games last season, I go to a lot of games as a spectator last season. And yeah, it, because in the grounds, you're not even sure what's going on half the time you're not getting information you don't know why the game's been stopped you don't know what the VAR's checking and you have the awful experience of not being able to celebrate a goal often I remember the Liverpool goals last season where you know it'd be a corner for instance and the ball would come in and someone would head it in and you, and you know you'd want to jump up and celebrate but then you think oh hang on 
uh, was there a little push there? Was he offside? And, and so you wouldn't celebrate. And that's taking away one of the fundamentals of football, certainly football fandom, which is celebrating. Um, so that's VAR on one side. What happened on Sunday between Spurs and Newcastle? That's more to do without getting too boring about it. Excuse pun. England, as in this country, has adopted a rule that has been used across Europe now for about two seasons which is just trying to simplify the handball law, which is basically if your arm is stretched out in the area and the ball hits it, even if it's unintentional, um, it's a handball, basically. So what we saw on Sunday with Eric Dyer for Spurs against Newcastle, and for me, an equally terrible one was Joel Ward, the Crystal Palace defender against Everton mm. the previous day. They're correct by the law. And VAR was kind of used correctly on both, on both instances because the referee went to check the monitor and, and make sure he saw what he thought he saw. And he, they, in both cases, they were interpreted correctly. The problem is the law is just ridiculous. I mean, Eric Dyer had his back towards the goal, uh, back towards the ball, sorry. He didn't even know what he was doing. His arm just mm. came out as it would come out if he jumped. Joel Ward, his arm was basically by his side and the ball just hit him from a couple of yards out. Yeah. Um, so it's a joke, really. And it is genuinely, I think, ruining football. And I've seen European football journalists who cover you know, the Bundesliga or Syria or La Liga saying, well, what you're complaining about in England, this has been happening in Europe for ages. Yeah, it has been happening in Europe for ages, for two seasons, I think, specifically. But also in those countries, they've had a ridiculous number of penalties on the back of handball calls. We don't right. want that in this country. We don't want the surge in penalties for handball that we've had, that you've seen in Italy, Spain and, and Germany. It's just ridiculous. It's been too, I mean, I don't know the exact stat, but there's been about 20, there's been 20 penalties already in the Premier League. About half or something have been for handball. We've only been playing for like three rounds. It's it's mm. just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. So, um, hopefully, it'll be changed. From a journalistic point of view, mm. is VAR the gift that keeps on giving though? Because it gives you so much to talk about and write about every single week. Or is it something like from your personal point of view that you don't like it? Would you rather it just be completely gone? and completely taken out of the game. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to VR just to go tomorrow, personally. Um, no, from a journalistic point of view, it's not great. I mean, I remember a good example was I covered Tottenham-Sheffield United last season. I think it was November, November-ish last season. And it was a really good game. Uh, ended one all. Uh, two really good teams. Well, Spurs were quite poor on the day, but Sheffield United were excellent. But it was, a, you know, it was a real battle, a really good game. And ultimately, the main talking point was a goal that was disallowed uh, through VAR, Sheffield United, uh, Sheffield United goal was ruled out because one of the players' toe, literally toe, big toe, mm. was offside in the build-up to the goal, which is just absolutely fast. He wasn't even the guy who scored the goal. He wasn't even the guy who assisted the goal. He was a guy who assisted the guy who assisted the goal, if I remember right. But his toe was offside, so the goal was ruled out. And that's what you end up writing about. I think my first four paragraphs were about that incident. And it's tedious to write about. And also it involves when you're a journalist, if you're at the game, going through the rules, checking the rules, making sure um, VAR was interpreted right, checking the name of the VAR, who's the VAR, who's the guy that stopped the part watching. It's, it's just so boring and tedious. And it's certainly not what I got into football journalism to do, is to write about refereeing decisions and decisions being made by a guy watching the game from, a, um, from, mm. a, uh, from, a cent- from an office in Watford or Heathrow, wherever. Yeah, yeah. So I'll... I'll- I'll play devil's advocate here a little bit because I, I like the idea of VAR and I do think that they need the referees need help. There's definitely a thing they need help. And the thing is, with me, it gets... Even if it's a quarter of inch offside, it's offside. Yeah. The trouble is that you've got now is you've got technology 
in theory, that can tell you that something is a quarter of... It's when I hear professionals and they'll say, but he was only just offside. Well, yeah, but he was offside. Yeah. And that's, that's where I come from in the fact I think that VAR has been a joke. It's just been an absolute joke from the start. But the idea of it is really good. It depends what you want from football. Do you want, do you want accuracy as accurate as it can be? Do you want accuracy to be as close to 100% as it, is, as it can possibly be? Or do you just want a game which flows really well and you accept that errors are made in that game? It purely depends on what side you come down on. Now, I have always come down on the side of saying, look, it's maddening when you watch a game and a referee makes a poor call. But overall in the season, how many bad call- how many real howlers are there? There's, there's a few calls where you go, oh, yeah, he was onside, the ref missed that. But you kind of accept why the referee made the bad call. You know, it's marginal. The odd dodgy penalty call. But again, it's subjective. You're like, well, I can see why he's given it. Okay, I wouldn't have given it. You probably shouldn't have given it, but I can see why he's given it. Th- those happen all the time. Most of us just shrug their shoulders about it. The, the thing that VAR was brought in was brought in for was to cut out the howlers, the absolute head scratching, head banging. You know, the decisions that make you bang your head on a on a table, make you want to sort of rip your eyeballs out. Those type of decisions. Mm-hmm. How many of them actually happen in a in a season? There's not really that many, I don't think. And so we've brought in all this technology to deal with those. And what it's actually led to is micromanaging the tiny little decisions that we were all sort of okay with anyway. I mean, look, if a player scores, if a player scores a goal and it's ruled out for offside because his toe was offside, just give him the goal. I'd rather just have the goal and it being technically incorrect than having the goal not given and us having to wait for two minutes while the decision is reviewed and made. And also as I said, as a fan, not being able to celebrate the goal or celebrating the goal and then having that celebration taken away from you because mm. actually it hasn't stood. I mean, that experience, I've experienced that where you've celebrated the goal. Um, Liverpool, there's a couple of Liverpool examples last season and then you're like, oh no, it's been ruled out because Roberto Firmino's knee was offside. I mean, that's a horrendous feeling. It's not what any of us who got into football want. We want the spontaneity. We want the, for me, the reason, one of the reasons football is a great sport on earth is because of the way it flows. It's not stop-start like, let's say, American football. I love cricket. I'm a big cricket fan, but let's face it, it can drag on a bit. Football is just perfect in terms of its length and its flow. Those two things were nailed decades ago. Why we're tinkering with it, I don't know. And yeah, to answer your original question, I'd get rid of it. And I do understand your devil's advocate point of view. It's a very valid argument. But personally, I don't care about maximum accuracy. I think the problem we've had is we've had so many people demanding, the most vocal people have been those demanding accuracy. Those people who say, I want consistency from referees. And they've ultimately got their way. And in my opinion, they've ultimately, I wouldn't say they've ruined football. That's probably a bit over the top. But they've diminished its uh, its sense of enjoyment. Mm -hmm. So why do you support Liverpool? I was just about to ask the same question. Uh, Um, My dad, actually. Yeah, he was, um, so he's part of a large, the Asian community that was in Kenya, in Africa. Mm. Uh, He grew up in the... um, when would it have been? Sort of the 50s and 60s there. He moved to this country in the 70s, his entire family. So all my uncles and aunts on my dad's side moved to this country in the 70s. And um, I got into football in the very, very late 80s. So I was eight in 1989. I think that's, when I, for me, that's when I fell in love with football. I remember being at school, just sort of falling in love with it over kind of a little period of time. And I mean, obviously, these might be false memories, but I'm pretty sure this happened. That I, you know, I, there was kids in my class. I was kind of late to it. It feels like I was late to it, that other kids in my class were into football before I was. And then I got into it and I said to one kid, oh, which team should I support? Because everyone supported a team. And he said, 
you support, he sort of said it as a statement of fact almost, you support the team your dad supports. So I went home, asked my dad who he supported, and he said Liverpool. And it wasn't actually, you mentioned my, uh, the book I did in, 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 in the intro to this, it wasn't actually until I was doing the book that I actually, actually asked my dad why I support Liverpool, which is ridiculous because that was like 2014, uh, so not that long ago. And I remember calling him one day uh, on the way home from work and saying, so this is 2014, so literally six years ago, saying, Dad, why, why do you actually support Liverpool, having not asked him for the previous kind of 33 <laughs> years of my life? And he told me the story, and it was, it's quite bizarre, really. He said that when he was growing up in Kenya, he was a mechanic in Kenya, in, in Mombasa, in Kenya. Um, there was kind of an amateur league that, that used to be played near his, the garage where he worked. Um, and and he, sort of, he, he, he sort of grew a fondness for a team that played in this league and they all wore red and they called themselves Liverpool and he didn't know where Liverpool was he didn't know what Liverpool meant he just so he didn't really question it he just supported them and they were called Liverpool and then he came to his country as I said in the 70s and realised there was an English Liverpool and actually the team he'd been supporting in, in Kenya was, was named after them so he just transferred his allegiances over to Liverpool and he's not a massive football fan he, I mean yeah, if you ask him he would support you say Liverpool but he's not that arsed but yeah once I fell in love with football I, I was sort of well and truly hooked to it and uh, by consequence well well and truly hooked onto Liverpool as well and so yeah supported the club ever since I was yeah I would say eight years old the first real memory I have is that Michael Thomas game the the Arsenal game in in 89 so you know I what I was, stu- I, I was stood on the cop that night really? wow. I was stood on the cop that night yeah because um I was that that obviously was the year of um Hillsborough yeah, yeah. Um, and for, I, I, I wish I could remember how we got tickets for that because it was the game. It was the game to Absolutely. be, and, and 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 we live in Gloucestershire, so I can cannot remember how we got tickets for it. But I'd arranged, I'd organised a five-a-side tournament to raise money for Hillsborough. Oh, wow. So I had this massive celebration check for five hundred pounds. That I, my whole idea was, I'll go in there and. Kenny Dalglish shall be there to accept the check. Yeah. <laughs> I, go, I go into this little area thinking, this is it, this is it. <laughs> and this, this guy came up and took the check, or took the actual check, left me with the big check and said, thank you very much. And then I went back, I just came back out where the hordes of all the Liverpool fans were, stood up on the cot with still holding this big fucking check. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in the middle of like, I think it was, was it 16,000 people at that time? All stood yeah. up. And it got to the point where it was like half time and I didn't realise. I was there with my mates. There's like four of us all together. And I didn't realise that nobody went, if they wanted to go to the toilet, they didn't go out to the toilet. They just went to the toilet where they stood. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking down at my check thinking, well, at least it's something I can, I can keep hold of. It's a, you know, it has just gone all oh, manky oh. and mushy. <laughs> and I look behind me and there's this scouser with his, thing in his hand going you're like there mate and he's just pissing all over my check what a story <laughs> and i thought well I, I thought the night can't get any worse than this and then fucking michael thomas turns up yeah. in the 90th minute and i've never seen so many grown men cry i looked around me in disbelief and there were all these men and women just crying, thinking, I, I don't believe this, because we were going to go out into Liverpool that night and have a great time with all the scousers, and it's going to be amazing. And it was, what a shit show of a night that was. was that, oh my Was that God. your first game, Anfield, as well? No, I, my mum and dad took me and some school friends in 80... Oh, 
We played Forest and we won 2 0, and Craig Johnston scored both goals. I think it was something like 83, 84, something like that. Um, and then that was my second game at Anfield. Well, yeah. How old have you been in 89? You've still been quite young. 89, I'd have been 20. I'd have been, I was 20 oh, in 1989, wow. yeah. Well, no, I'd have been coming up to 20. I've been 19. So. What a story. So, yeah. so you're in the cop on one of the most iconic nights in English football, having someone piss on a giant check that you're holding. I tell you what, yeah. that's one of my biggest regrets is I never got to I never got to stand in the in the old cop. And my first ever game was uh, Blackburn at home in December '92. Sim- not as big as that game that you went to, but also a really big game. It was Kenny Dalglish's first game back at Anfield after he'd resigned in '91 with Blackburn. Um, and my uncle got me and me and my cousin his son um, tickets. Uh, so that so that's quite a big deal. We'd n- literally never been to Anfield before. So I think all, not, mm. three of us have never been. So and I was in the Anfield Road end so I could see the cop and it was a great thing to see to see it in full flight you know to see it oh yeah to see it swaying and moving it was an absolutely incredible thing so I feel lucky I saw it but sadly yeah I didn't I never got to stand in the old standing cop and I've got a season ticket there now which is great but just to have had one game in the old cop would have been uh, would have been great yeah and the thing is, I can't remember anything about the game. I can remember about the guy pissing on the check and stuff like that, but I cannot. I think I've just wiped it from my memory. Yeah, because it was it was such a, a, a night that was going to be. It was filled with so much promise and so much celebration, and I already had the excuses for my work about I'm not going to be going in the following day because I will still be in Liverpool. <laughs> And like none of that happened. I went to work then the following day, and it was just, it was just. Uh... And then we bought him. We bought yeah. Michael Thomas. I couldn't believe it. But you know, he was quite you good. Know. Though, so so I, he, was, he was good, though. He was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He yeah. was. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how has it been for you for the last couple of years? Because it's we've sort of been in dreamland for the last, I would say, th- starting with the Champions League final of twenty eighteen. 2018, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's been a, a whirlwind. It really has. It's been brilliant, yeah. It's been brilliant, not just because of the football, but I'm so so. I, I got my season ticket in 2014, but I joined the supporters club in 2003, which was a massive moment for me because up until then I was really struggling, like a lot of Liverpool fans who aren't season ticket holders or aren't members or whatever, getting tickets. Um, mm. I, I got the odd, you know, I'd get one or two through the general sale process every season, and I was desperate to go. I was really keen to be a match goer, a regular match goer, but. Couldn't get, couldn't get hold of any tickets. And in 2003, I discovered this uh, supporters club that uh, was run by two season ticket holders uh, who'd been season ticket holders since like the mid-80s who lived really near where I live. And they told me that, um, or I met one of the guys and he said, yeah, we, got, we do a coach to every home game. Uh, we can get you tickets for every home game. Uh, just you know, give us £10 at the start of the year as kind of admin fee and you just email us if you want to come to a game and we'll sort out your coach seat and uh, a match ticket. And I thought, this wow. This sounds too good to be true, but I'd sort of tested it. I remember Birmingham at home was the first game I applied for in sort of November 2003. Got an email soon after saying, yeah, ticket confirmed, beat the coach um, at, um, and gave me the location, the venue, the pickup location at sort of 8.45 that morning or whatever. It was like a 4 p.m. kickoff on a Sunday. And even then I was like, I'm not sure this sounds too good to be true, but I turned up, <laughs> the coach was waiting, the guy who I'd met was waiting. Um, and 17 years on, 17 years on, I'm still part of that, that same supporters club, and wow, it changed wow, my good. life. Yeah, and for years I was going up and down uh, to Anfield with them, going to loads of matches, and got my season ticket in 2014. So I still travelled with the supporters club. But I had my own ticket now, and I just made loads of really good friends through the club. And the last few years, 
we've started to go to um, a lot of European games as well. So that season where we won in Madrid, I went to, I think, every, um, every European away except Porto. Uh, 2018, I went to quite a few of the aways. I went to Moscow, I remember, at the start of that run and got, went to the final as well. I'd gone to Istanbul as well, but that was kind of on my own. And I think what's been lovely the last couple of years is not just going to these amazing games and watching us be amazing domestically and in Europe, but doing it with my mates. Like The, the sense of camaraderie in the group, in the supporters club, is as, is as good as it's, ever, as it's ever been. And the team is as good as it's ever been in my lifetime. And for mm. those two things to come mm. together has just been amazing. And that's what's made the last six months absolutely heartbreaking. I'm so missing going to the game. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what you feel like around it. It's like watching on TV is absolutely fine. But once you become a match goer and you lose, because I mean, it's not just the match, it's not just the 90 minutes. It's getting on that coach in the morning, meeting all the lads, having a laugh, catching up, then parking up outside Stanley Park, going to the Sandon, which is the pub we drink at near Anfield, having a couple of pints, meeting more people at the, at the pub then going to the match, watching Liverpool win because we're brilliant and then getting a coach home and everyone being in a great mood. That experience has just been amazing for the last couple of years and to have lost it has been, yeah, I'm not going to lie, it's been heartbreaking. It really has and I'm just desperate to get back on, get back into it. But obviously I'm not sure when that's going to happen because this virus is just ridiculously out of control. Yeah. 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 Well, I went, I went to uh, Anfield for a tour back in August for my birthday and it's the first time I've been there since the, obviously the redevelopment. Yeah. Um, and it was absolutely stunning. I mean, it was just beautiful just seeing how everything, because before it was just the terraced houses, you know, around. And we, I, we stayed like four streets away in one of those little terraced houses, like an Airbnb. And I, I just sitting in the living room of that, I thought to myself, God, I wonder what it must have been like even just being sat here, say Liverpool, Barcelona. You would have heard the crowd, yeah. you know, you'd be, oh, it must be amazing. I must try and get down there to see see him again. But um, what, what do you think uh, with the way that the season started? I know, and apologies, all you um, listening, that if you're not a football fan, and we've alienated a lot of you <laughs> in this episode, but we very rarely talk football on this on this podcast. So apologies for that. Um, but we've had a good start this season. Um, how do you think it's going to go with the way that everybody else has started? Yeah, no, it'd be brilliant. I mean, the Arsenal game, as of recording, the most recent game we played was the Arsenal League game where we won 3-1 and, and we're really, really good. It's a weird season um, in terms of predictions because of the nature of it. The fact that the pre-season is mm. really short, the fact the games are going to come thick and fast, the fact it may not even finish, you know, let's let's be honest, I and mean, we don't know what's going to happen. Players being hit by coronavirus, so Thiago, our sexy, lovely new signing as a uh, it's currently self-isolating, which is just kind of surreal if you sort of stop and think about it. Um, so it's really hard to predict. But on a, on a purely footballing level, if we presume things will kind of go as they look like they're going to go and there's not going to be any major bumps in the road, I mean, you've got to fancy us for the title again. City look incredibly vulnerable um, and we're just the best team in the league. Uh, and the signings have been great. I think Thiago is a fantastic signing. Jota, I'm really happy with as well. Um, Injuries are the big issue. If Van Dyke gets injured, I think we're in big trouble. If Allison gets injured, I think we're in massive trouble. Uh, he, I mean, I was so relieved he started against Arsenal. And then he makes that save from Lacazette at two-one, which mm. which um, was a massive moment. But yeah, all in all, really, really positive. But then it's quite a bit of sweet as well because I presumed uh, and back in the last season when I missed watching us win the league that I thought, okay, if we win it next season, I'll be there. It'll happen. It'll be fine. And now you know, I'm thinking, God, are we going to win the league again? And I'm again not going to be at the stadium. It's going to be heartbreaking. But yeah, from a purely footballing point of view, we look immense. And uh, yeah, 
barring sort of any mad things going on or, or the lack of pre-season catching up with us in a kind of a wild, unpredictable way. It's hard to see us not winning the league again, to be honest. Mm. But I think that that whole thing about the lack of pre-season is the same for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably even worse for think, Man United and Man City because they had a shorter pre-season yeah, yeah. Uh, than we did. Uh, Neil, do you want to chime in with anything Tottenham related? or? <laughs> I'm just gonna do a shrug. I'm glad. I'm glad Bale's back. Um, there you go. I'm glad Bale's back. A bit of leadership within the ranks. Can I ask you, Neil? Have you I been watching know. the uh, Amazon documentary? I have. What, I what have. Made of it? Well, to be honest, when um, I've quite enjoyed it, and it has sort of changed, my, which I know it was intended to, and changed my mind on Mourinho. Oh uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I quite like him on that. And I didn't like the bloke before. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was never a Mourinho fan. So when we when we appointed him as manager, my heart did sink. And I was thought, I thought, oh. But I'll give it a go now when he's here. Uh, but the TV series is great. Um, I know people that aren't football fans and have watched it and have really enjoyed it. I've really, li- so. yeah, I've really liked it. I think I was, I was wary about going into it. I, I wasn't actually going to plan to watch it. I thought it was going to be really glossy and, um, yeah, just kind of an advert for Spurs. And it is, in a way, as you say, the way it's been edited, and, and yeah. it, it yeah. is a bit of a brochure for Spurs. But actually, I think there's been some really genuinely interesting insight. I think it's been quite raw at times, like the, Danny Rose, yeah. the argument with Danny Rose at Mourinho, I thought was, was really interesting. And a few other little moments have been quite good, a bit, bit of back, you know, looking in a dressing room pre-match and half-time has been interesting. And I'm like you, for my sins, I'm sort of warming to Mourinho a bit. I kind of get mm. it when you, you kind of get the charisma. Everyone yeah. talks about when you see him interact with the players. Um, although I still wouldn't want him anywhere near my club, I've got to be honest. But I do, I, I do get it a bit more with him. Yeah, no, I just think it's been actually a really good watch. So, how do you think we'll do this season? I think Bale's a massive, uh, a massive factor. If he, if he, um, he's he's going to be hungry. I don't think the attitude, his attitude, is not going to be a problem. He's he's gagging to be, to do well for Spurs. There's no issues there. Uh, he'll need a bit of time to get his fitness up. But as long as he's used right and Mourinho doesn't go full Mourinho and somehow alienate him or end up playing him a right back or something stupid like that. I think he could be, I think he could be huge for Spurs actually. I think, mm. I think, I think top four is definitely up for grabs for Spurs. I think, I still think City will, will sort of get in there because they've just got so many good players. I think sort of by hook or by foot, they'll get in there. I think we should be fine as well. But then I think it's kind of between Spurs, Chelsea, Leicester, United and Chelsea, this is, um, and Arsenal, I should say, the obvious kind of candidates for the top four. But um I think Spurs are pretty much on par with all of those teams. I mean, Chelsea, I, I was really worried by their transfer business. I thought, bloody hell, they've signed really well. And maybe mm. I'll come to regret what I'm going to say next. But actually, I think, I, I think they're going to struggle to see largely because I don't think Frank Lampard's actually a very good manager. Um, mm. I think he's kind of... A lot of people were saying this, but I was like, no, I think he's quite good. I think he's done all right. He did okay at Derby. But actually, I think he's a bit shit, actually. And I think that's going to ultimately cost them. Yeah. We should talk about Swindon Town, actually. Kerry's team. <laughs> That's what we should have been talking about. Damn. Uh, no, we'll leave that for another podcast. We'll leave Swindon Town for yeah. um, Right, before we carry on, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a quiz mm. now, Sasha, and we're going to play Kerry or Curtin. I'm going to give you a line of dialogue. You need to tell me whether you think it was Kerry or Curtin that said it, okay? So there's five of these. Okay. Here's, num- here's number one. Have you taken something... That sounds like Curtin to me. That is Curtin. Well done. That's in the Vicar's Son, when the Vicar's Son has popped a pill and he's there yeah. while he's fishing. So that's so good. One out of one. Number two. Please don't get slugs over. He'll never leave. 
Oh, that's a tougher one. That I think I'm going to say Curtin again. It sounds like something he would raise with Kerry would be a bit more chilled about slugs being over. So I'm going to say Curtin. That was actually Kerry. Oh, was that was in Mandy when they're trying to find out who Rob Robinson was. Okay. <laughs> uh, question number three. Quick question for you. Kitchen colour, teal tension or mellow sage? That's a quote, is it? That's a quote. Quick question for you. Kitchen colour. Yeah, I wasn't saying quick question yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. That's part. <laughs> <laughs> and I qu- <laughs> Could you help me yeah, on this decorating, yeah. please? Okay. And, and I quote. Yeah. Quick question for you. Kitchen colour, teal tension or mellow sage? End quote. That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, oh, I'll yeah, I wasn't asking you for yeah. my personal. <laughs> yeah, okay. we, we've stepped out of the quiz for a second for a bit of yeah. um, I'll say I'll say Kerry, but yeah, really not sure on that one. To be honest, I'll say Kerry. That was Curtin. That was Curtin in the very last episode when he's trying to get the colour for his flat. Oh, of okay, yeah. so one out of three. We're on to number four. I get out amongst people. I kiss babies on the head. Well, that is definitely a quote. That is not what I'm yeah. saying. Just so you know. Uh, I'm going. Oh, I'm, I'm going to say Kerry. That is Kerry. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. In the last episode as well, when she is the uh, the Harvest Queen, is it Lord of the Harvest? Lord of the Harvest. Okay, last one. I actually don't want to be harsh, Vicar, but I think you might have Munchausen syndrome. <laughs> it's a great line. Whoever said it. Um... That sounds like something Curtin would say. That yeah. is well done. Yeah. Three out of five. That was in the aftermath. Uh, well very done. Respectable. Very respectable. Very respectable. I'm going to have to check. I'm going to have to check with Lindsay and see how many she got and see if you beat her or not. I hope it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to. Have to I should that's, have checked before. That's my main but, objective: uh, is to come on this podcast and beat Lindsay. That's very <laughs> first thing. That's the only reason I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, just going on about you said about how you um, you love podcasts and stuff. Um, what made you get into doing podcasts like the one with Lindsay? And uh, do you do a Liverpool one as well? I'm doing you... a football one called, I've just started it called Fans, which involves me just basically talking to football fans, just like one hour conversations with, with fans from different teams. Um, I love podcasts. Yeah, I just, I really fell in love with them a few years ago. And um, I think, I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. I listen to a mix and I listen to a few football ones. I listen to yeah, comedy ones like yourselves and, and like the Richard Herring Leicester Square one and, uh, rule of three which is great and a few other ones um I can't just and i've always got about sort of six on the go i don't always, always listen to every episode of every podcast but i don't know i think it's the intimacy of it i think um yeah i mean I, i'm always listening to stuff so um for my sins i don't read a lot but that's partly because i read a lot of work so in my spare time i don't really want to read because i'm just you know words are such a big part of my job that i kind of want to move away from them so audio has become a big part of my life as i've got older so on the way to work, I'll listen, you know, I'll listen to stuff. I go for a run quite regularly. Uh, so I'll have something on the go. And yeah, it can be music, but increasing over the years, it's been podcasts. And I just, I think it's the intimacy, intimacy of the experience, the variety you get through podcasts and having sort of fallen in love with them. I then decided I want to get in, I wanted to get into them. So I did that comedy one for a bit, which, which um, didn't last very long. Won't go into the reasons for it, but let's just say it's got <laughs> nothing to do with me. Uh, the other person may be to blame, but I won't go into that one. Um, and then I started the one with Lindsay, uh, which has been great. We're taking a pause on that at the moment, but that's the link to this, and we'll, we'll get back into that at some point probably. And yeah, doing this one at the moment. I think for me as well, it was I was interested in the recording process as well, the recording producing process. I wanted to sort of learn how to do that. 
and by learning to do that, you then obviously automatically then you think, well, I'll do a podcast because I now now know how to record one, so I'll actually do one. So that's how sort of Lindsay, the one with Lindsay, is this thing on came about, and uh, I've taken it on with the the fans one I'm doing, the football one I'm doing as well. So yeah, I just sort of love them really. I just um, yeah, they've they've been an explosion, hasn't it? The last few years. I mean, there's about seven billion podcasts out there. Everyone's got one, haven't they? I think, but um, mm. yeah, the great- which 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 doubled after shutdown. Once yeah. shutdown, everybody was doing a podcast, weren't they? It was like the the thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember speaking to a guy called Chris Skull, who who's one third of my absolute favourite football podcast, which is called Quickly Kevin Willie Score. Yes, '90s football podcast, which I absolutely adore, and I and I great one. He's that he was actually a guest on my most recent guest on the football podcast I do. But I interviewed him about two years ago for a Guardian piece about football podcasts. I wrote an article about them, and I interviewed a, interviewed him for that piece. And he said on that that when he was growing up, he wanted to be a radio DJ. That was his dream, but he just couldn't find a way into the industry mm. because of the, as he put it, because of the gatekeepers that are involved. He just couldn't make a break into it. And he says doing the podcast and he's done not just quickly Kevin he's done a couple of other he's a West Ham fan so he's done a West Ham one as well he goes it's just giving him that route to fulfill his sort of childhood dream and there's a real meritocracy with with podcasts where as you said anyone can do it and you can find a little audience that absolutely loves you and that's great and that can be really rewarding or like you know as you say a Josh Rogan one you can find a massive um audience which make which then allows you to make loads and loads of money which is great as well obviously but either way you create your own little product that you're really proud of that allows you to get yourself out there and build up a little bit of the following and it's really really rewarding i think yeah i agree um okay right final this country question um what with the fact that they have sort of officially said that there's no more um how do you feel about the impending u.s remake of this country oh, i think it's going to be absolutely horrendous personally yeah um interestingly i read i was reading an interview uh well i'd read it ages ago and i read it again in the build-up to, to speaking to you guys with with um i think alice jones who's a tv writer for the independent and done with daisy may cooper and and charlie and uh, i mean you guys might be aware of this but i think the i mean you're probably certainly almost certainly aware of this but the pilot of this country was was horrendous apparently it's like it goes it's gone down as one of the worst pilots in tv history yeah, well, it's originally called Kerry. That was the thing. It was um, a completely different thing to what yeah. this country actually is. And I, yeah. I think she was saying, was it because it was sort of done through NBC or and the BBC or something? Or there was certainly an American version of the pilot. The American TV had got involved in the pilot or at the early stages. And anyway, she said they turned it into like the OC in the Cotswolds. And it was just lacked completely the vision they had for the show and ultimately what the spirit of the show is. And I just think an American version, I mean, I just don't think they're going to capture the spirit. I mean, the American office is really good. I mean, I know loads of people mm. love it. I think there's lots of people who think it's better than the British one. It's great and I enjoy it. But for me, it's it's still a bit American. I know it sounds like an obvious thing to say. That sort of complete smallness, that pathos, that sort of brutal, raw emotion that this country gives and the office gives you, I just don't think as much as they try, TV companies can capture uh, they always still just they always just go slightly over the top they're always just slightly sort of big and cartoony and i do think that will happen with this country i hope to be pleasantly surprised it'd be amazing if it's great but i just can't i mean where will they set it i don't know do we know will it be sort of in will it be in the sort of deep kansas, south isn't it? kansas yeah so okay that, that, it might sure. have that feel that that sort of out there feels kind of being in a sticks mm. feel and that sort of loneliness that you get through that 
So maybe it may, may work. But um, I, I mean, saying it's going to be horrendous is probably a bit harsh, but I'm, I'm skeptical. Put it like this. I don't think it will be as good as our this country. I think that's almost, you know, that's almost certain. Mm. Yeah. I think we're all nervous about seeing it. Yeah. But we, we sort of don't have to care, do we? It's kind of their product. And if it's rubbish, yeah. it's rubbish. And we've still got our British version. Great. <laughs> and that's fine. So let them get on with it. But uh, yeah, as long as, as long as they don't sort of in any way, I can't see how it would do, but it doesn't affect the British the legacy, the British one. I don't, I don't mind too much. And obviously it won't do. It'll be their own sort of thing. So we'll see how it goes. Mm. We can only wait and see. That's all we yeah. can do. Um, Sashin, thank you very much for spending some time with us. It's been, uh, it's been awesome. really, really nice to chat to you about Liverpool and about how great we are and about the fact that we're champions. And, you know, I'm just going to revel in it. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just going to revel in it for a little bit longer because I have to admit, I never thought I'd see us win the title again in my lifetime. So it's, um, you know, it's just great, isn't it? It's a great time to be alive in some ways. <laughs> in other ways, in other ways, it's, everything's a real shit show. And oh my God, what are we going to do in the future? But thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, we will put the uh, links to uh, your podcast in the show notes. So if anybody wants to uh, listen, um, then they can just click away on that. Uh, like I say, thank you very much, Sashin, for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Neil, do you want to get on with your little bits and pieces? Oh, of course I will. So you can find us on all the social medias under This Country Pod. Please do give us a like, a click, and follow us. You can email us if you have any questions or you'd like to chat to us about anything This Country-related. Please do at wtafthiscountry@hotmail.com. And also we have a website where it shows all our content, everything else on there, plus tickets to our live show. Our final live show is for sale on there under WTAFpodcast.com. Well done, Neil. It's like you've always done, you've practiced that. In the mirror. Every <laughs> every day. Don't mention that newspaper. <laughs> uh, and don't forget to uh, go to patreon.com forward slash WTAF if you want to support the podcast. Loads of different uh, things for you to uh, join in, different levels and rewards and all of that kind of gubbins. Patreon.com forward slash WTAF. Wonderful. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Pav. Thank you, Sashin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening and go and get plumbed, you fuckers. Scarecrow Festival is like the most important day of the year. Daft cow? This is just ridiculous. What the actual fuck? Hi, I'm Pav. I'm Neil. We're here to tell you about our new exciting project, the Top 10 of Anything podcast. Phenomenal. That's right, Neil. We grab a guest or two, pick a subject, then bring our own Top 10s to the pod. Yes. It could be Top 10 scary movies, Top 10 swear words, Top 10 breakfast foods, anything. Oh, you saucy devil. Indeed, Neil. Our first episode will be online very soon, so subscribe on all your usual podcast platforms so you don't miss it. Yes. The Top 10 of Anything podcast. Let's begin the countdown. Phenomenal. Phenomenal.